Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. The Supreme Court has issued a preliminary decision on Trump's travel ban, and this decision could have a profound impact on refugees around the world. The court has upheld key portions of the travel ban pending a final ruling by the court in October. This includes a 120-day ban on all refugees coming to the United States from everywhere in the world, though with some exceptions. On the line with me to talk through the Supreme Court ruling, including its implications for U.S. refugee resettlement policy, is Rachel Landry, a policy and advocacy officer for global protection and resettlement with the International Rescue Committee, which is one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in the United States. Rachel discusses the ways in which this ruling could impact how the United States takes in refugees from around the world. She also discusses U.S. refugee resettlement process more broadly. That is how it works, its history and background. And I promise after listening to this conversation, you will learn a lot about refugee policy and why it matters. Like me, Rachel is a Humanity in Action senior fellow, and she is speaking in her personal capacity as an expert on these issues and is not speaking on behalf of the International Rescue Committee couple of quick announcements before we begin. As I mentioned earlier this week, we are scheduling a conference call focused on your career goals and how to achieve them with two people who have had really interesting and varied careers in international affairs. That is being scheduled for next month in July. If you want more details about that conference call, how you can participate, how you can ask questions, send me an email Go to the globaldispatchespodcast.com homepage or click on the link in the description field of this podcast and you can click the contact me link to send me an email and I will send you more information and put you on a list uh, in which I'll send information out to people pending more details of this career conference call. Also, for premium members, I am rolling out some new bonuses for you. I've created an Instagram list that is a list of 30 or so Instagram accounts that you should follow if you care about foreign policy and world affairs and if you are on Instagram. This is to complement my very large Twitter list, which can be yours if you become a premium subscriber to the podcast. And huge thank you to everyone who is a premium subscriber. If you're considering becoming one, I urge you to just take take the leap. I, I so appreciate your support. I cannot keep this podcast up without that support. I depend on you. And if you're listening to me ramble on now, I suspect that you depend on me to help you make sense of the world and news around the world and bring you this kind of fresh and, and unique content that you can't really find anywhere else. So thank you in advance for that. And now here is my conversation with Rachel Landry. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So this comes just five months after the Trump administration announced its original executive order and on the heels of two circuit court rulings that actually upheld the stay on a revised version of the travel ban that has been in place since March. So in addition to deciding to hear the case in October, the Supreme Court also lifted these lower court injunctions on the travel ban allowing it to go into effect, but with some certain exceptions, largely on the basis of national security grounds. Just to sort of recap what the some of the core tenets of the Muslim and refugee ban, um, there's really three critical components that will now be able to go into effect. Um, the first, which is under Section 2, is the 90-day pause to entry of foreign nationals from six Muslim-majority countries pending review of vetting processes. And these six countries are Iran, Syria, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, and Somalia. And then the next two components, both under Section 6 of the ban, are a 120-day pause to the U.S. resettlement program pending a review of security procedures, and also a reduction in the refugee admission ceiling from 110,000 refugees to 50,000 refugees for FY mm-hmm. 2017. And but there are certain caveats, right, to to number one and number two, which has to do with whether or not people who are coming to the United States have something called like a bona fide connection to the country already. Yes, that's exactly correct. So it actually applies to to all three of the provisions that I just mentioned. So the Supreme Court said that those individuals that can prove a bona fide relationship with a person or an entity in the U.S. may still be be able to come in. Um, So this includes refugees from all countries and foreign nationals from the six Muslim countries. Um, and it and seems, the, the decision the, in the decision, the Supreme Court gave like some specific examples of what those might be, like relatives or uh, students who are coming to study, who have been like accepted to university, things like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it seems like close family ties to a person in the U.S. Um, for the person, um, but it's really a question of will that just be nuclear family or will it be broader? And then for a formal relationship with an entity, um, that entity, that relationship has to have already been established, like with the university or place of work, um, and can't be established for the sole purpose of evading the travel ban. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what? one of the really big questions as far as the refugee resettlement program is concerned is there are right now 26,000 refugees um, abroad who have been accepted into the resettlement program and received assurances from resettlement agencies to be able to come to the United States. Um, So the question is really, is that that relationship with a resettlement agency 
in the U.S. going to allow them to enter? So that was going to be my question to you, but I suppose that it's already it, it's not uh, sort of not not known at this point, right? Whether or not a refugee resettlement agency. I know the IRC is like the largest secular. Uh, resettlement agency in the United States, but there are a number of, of religious-based ones and, and other organizations that are nonprofits, NGOs who receive government grants sometimes to help resettle refugees who have been cleared for coming to the United States, and they work with these refugees to help them set up their new life and, and new home. But the question is whether or not those resettlement agencies that have already been paired up with refugees that are supposed to come to the United States, if that counts as like a bona fide entity for the purposes of the Supreme Court ruling. Right, exactly. And I mean, I would like to say, of course, that it that that does count as as a relationship. You know, these individuals who are abroad have received these assurances and resettlement agencies are preparing for them to come. They're arranging housing and all of that. Um, but we'll really have to wait and see um, implementation guidance that resettlement agencies are res uh, expecting to receive from the, the State Department. To uh, know so more. that's the next step. So that, that was going to be my question. Like how does organizations like the IRC figure out whether or not they count as like a bona fide entity? And, and you're expecting some further guidance from the State Department? Sure, yeah. So all resettlement agencies um, will really have to have to wait and see. Um, it'll be coming from the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration as to as to how this bona fide relationship with a person or entity uh, will will be interpreted. Do your colleagues expect this to result in in more lawsuits? Will there be more lawsuits? You think that um, try to nail down what in fact the the precise rules are. So while I can't really comment on necessarily what what my colleagues expect, what I can say is, um, you know, litigation is always something um, is always a strategy to consider, and it may be the case that there will have to be really specific litigation in regards to just how how this is implemented. Um, and, you know, with the, the cases against the executive order, some resettlement agencies like HIAS, the Jewish resettlement agency, did go ahead and take the approach of litigation while other resettlement agencies take different advocacy approaches. Hmm. Okay, that's that's interesting. So, but you're saying there are already twenty six thousand refugees who have been cleared, already vetted, are awaiting um, final entrance to the United States that have already been paired up with organizations like HIAS or the IRC, um, and their ability to come to the United States now hangs in profound limbo as to whether or not the guidance issued. Um, determines um, if these agencies are in fact bona fide for the purposes of of the the Supreme Court ruling. Right, and I would just add that you know there are of course many refugees within that population that has already received assurances who will indeed have family ties in mm -hmm. the U.S. So that's so that's like plan B, I suppose. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so those individuals would be allowed to come, and they would be allowed to come above and beyond the 50,000 admission ceiling. Um, oh, but okay. it's really a question for those other cases where individuals may not have a family tie, but they have really urgent needs, like medical needs, that simply cannot be addressed in in the host country where they are. Mm-hmm. 
Like, is is a doctor, I mean, outside the, the whether or not you're a refugee, if you're just trying to come to the United States, you're from one of those six countries, if you're kind of trying to come to the United States for like a surgery, um, does that doctor count as like a bona fide relationship? I mean, who knows? Right. I mean, I think that's really, that's really where the question, where the line the line is. Um, and I think we'll really have to wait and see um, to receive guidance from, from the State Department. So can we back up a little bit and talk about refugee resettlement more broadly and how things have changed um, between Trump and Obama? I just saw um, earlier this week that the number of refugees that have been resettled to the United States over the last three months is something like half the number that were resettled during the last three months of the Obama administration, like 26,000 versus 13,000. Um, what, what accounts for this shift? Sure. So, I mean, it really has to do with the setting of the refugee admission ceiling. Um, for fiscal year 2017, President Obama had set the ceiling at 110,000 refugees. Um, but when President Trump came into office, he lowered that ceiling to 50,000. Um, and it's, it's looking like we actually will admit um, more than 50,000 refugees, and that is simply because um, Congress passed a continuing resolution that funds resettlement closer to 75,000. Mm. Um, but just to sort of give you um, more of a historical perspective or a comparison point, um, since 1980, when the 1980 Refugee Act was put into place, um, sort of establishing the framework for the contemporary admission ceiling, the average ceiling since 1980 has been 96,000 refugees annually. Um, so you can see how 50,000 is, is really a drastic cut. Um, and that's, that's important in the U.S., but that's also really important on the world stage. Um, in 2016, the U.S. resettled 51% of all refugees resettled worldwide. So let's let's talk about that a bit because there I think is some um, misperceptions out there uh, about sort of refugee resettlement. So there are something like twenty two point five million refugees in a world in in the world today, according to the latest UN Refugee Agency figures. Right. Um, to be a resettled refugee, though, uh, is is a, a really kind of a category that is far different from the vast majority of the 22.5 million refugees out there. Most of those 22.5 million people live just across the border from the place that they've fled, and they probably will live there for, for many years, or they will return home. But there's like a very tiny percentage, about like 1%, if that, that are eligible for third country resettlement. And these are the refugee cohort that we're talking about who are coming to the United States who are affected by this uh, travel ban. So how does a a refugee become, you know, say like a, a refugee over the border in Jordan, a Syrian refugee living in Jordan, become eligible to go to a third country, whether or not it's the US or Sweden or Germany or, or wherever? Like, how does that process start? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying, Resettlement is real. It's such a highly targeted intervention that's really available only to the most vulnerable refugees. Um, and 
you know, to give you an idea of sort of the the cases that that come up for those in need of resettlement, I mentioned before, like a medical case, um, a typical case would be a refugee family with a young child with autism whose special needs, for example, simply could not be met in in a country like Jordan. Um, or a family reunification case, like an orphaned refugee child who is being reunified with an adult sibling in a third country. Yeah, I spoke oh. to a uh, a gay Syrian refugee living in Turkey who was being targeted by ISIS operatives in Turkey. Uh, and he was given uh, refugee status to the United States. So, I mean, it's just like, a, like a very extreme cases. No, but that I mean, that's a perfect example because... Oftentimes, the rhetoric that we get from, um, you know, organizations and individuals who are anti-resettlement is that if you just put more aid into the region, you can help more refugees. But that's exactly the example that shows that this individual simply cannot be helped in Turkey because of his sexual orientation and certainly wouldn't be able to go back to Syria. Um, And so that's why resettlement is needed. Um, so would be happy to sort of walk through in the U.S. Um, what that what that process looks like. To yeah, be yeah, yeah. Like, tell me how how a Somali refugee living in Ethiopia ends up in Lewiston, Maine. Sure. Um, so the first part. So I'd like to think about re- this process really in three three major phases that take place all overseas at first and then um, and then in the US. So first it's important to make really clear, like in this it, you just mentioned this example, that um, refugees can't self-identify or apply to be resettled. They have to be identified most typically by uh, the UN Refugee Agency, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and then have their case referred to the US. Um, So that's sort of the first phase is the identification and referral process. Once a refugee is referred to the U.S. government for selection, um, that refugee is still overseas and a really, really extensive vetting process takes place with the U.S. government. And it's really important to be clear that there's actually no harder way to come to the United States then through the U.S. resettlement program because of this vetting process. So just to give you an idea, there's 20 steps in this process. And at any point along the way, the U.S. can decide that it doesn't want to admit the refugee. So the process involves eight different U.S. federal government agencies, six different security databases, five separate background checks, four biometric security checks, three in-person interviews, all the while there are reoccurring interagency checks up until the refugee's arrival in the U.S. um, that continue to screen biographic data and check individuals across several watch lists. How long does that usually take, all those 20 steps? So it can take anywhere from 18 uh, to 24 months. Mm -hmm. It's a really long process. And And then finally the refugee will need to go through a health screening as well if they if they make it through all those steps. So okay, so so at this point they're what they're are they paired up with an agency like the IRC? Yes. So um you would be paired up with an agency at a refugee um processing center 
once once your your um, your application is accepted and an agency like the IRC would begin to make arrangements for for a refugee's arrival. And what what do those arrangements entail? Um, so it's things like um, planning to greet you at the airport and to arrange arrange an apartment for you, um, get you set up with basic funding, um, and then those you know once you're you've arrived in the country. It's things like job placement, vocational training, financial literacy, professional accreditation. Um, so there's there's a lot of support that refugees receive from resettlement agencies um, once once they're in the U.S. Um, really geared toward um, success in their new homes and self sufficiency. How is it determined, like where in the U.S. they will end up? Like, why is, as I said earlier, like Lewiston a hub of a Somali population, Somali refugees? Um, so that's determined between um, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, and then all of the nine resettlement agencies who will get together on a weekly basis and actually have these sort of allocation meetings um, to to determine. Um, which agency will take which refugees, and then also where where those refugees will go. Um, and there certainly are often considerations as to like where there are particular hubs of nationalities that that may come into play, or if um, a resettlement agency has in one of its field offices a really like particular skill related to. Um, challenging medical cases or something like that, that will also be taken into consideration. So you said earlier that historically the U.S. has taken in just over half of all refugees who are resettled in third countries. Um, presumably, you know, Canada, the Nordic countries are, are big leaders as well. But why is the U.S. like an oversized participant here? And would it not sort of make sense for other countries to, to step up as well? Sure. I mean, the U.S. has a really long history of, of resettling refugees. Um, we've admitted over 3 million refugees since 1975 and introduced our first refugee legislation, um, the Displaced Persons Act, in 1948, which was even before the 1951 Refugee Convention was established. Um, so this is something that has really sort of always been um, received a lot of bipartisan support and has been um, really integral to to the U.S. and to to our foreign policy and to sort of who we are as a country um, it, of accepting refugees. Is it sort of like an extension of the U.S. being like an immigrant country as opposed to some of these Western European countries? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that certainly has something to do with it. I mean, we are we are a country of immigrants. We are predicated on diversity. Um, and refugees really only only enhance enhance that diversity. And uh, are other countries expected to step up now that the Trump administration is kind of scaling back? Like, what what have been some of their reactions around the world so far? You know, um, it's really the hope that other countries will do more. Oftentimes, 
you know, we have been able to use our our leadership um, in this position to to encourage and ask other countries to do more, like EU countries who are considering an EU resettlement framework, um, and Canada already. Um, they accept the the second largest number of refugees each year, then followed by Australia. Um, so. And Canada, I should say, has a really unique private program of refugee resettlement, which is, in which like individual citizens can sponsor refugees. You don't have to necessarily um, be a government agency to to bring them over. Yeah, I that is something that you know the public private the this private sponsorship model was something that was talked about under the Obama administration too, and I think there's there would really be a lot of support in the United States to have something like that. And the, the Canadian model has been so successful. I agree with that actually. Cause we, we are like, obviously like, like in, as an individual, you know, Americans are very generous. Um, just like, you know, we, there's like a cultural philanthropy and a culture of, of immigration to this country that I think would make that kind of private refugee sponsorship model that works well in Canada work well here, but there hasn't been that political buy-in yet. Yeah, you know, there hasn't been the buy-in yet with the Trump administration, but I do think that there is a way to to pitch private sponsorship in a way that could be could be appealing. I mean, typically we would pitch it as something that has to be above and beyond what the government does. Um, and so if it's at no added cost to the government, um, I think I think that would be one way to to sort of bring in more creative approaches under this administration that that might receive some success. Good. Well, is there anything else that we should know that they, that listeners should be aware of in terms of refugee resettlement and what else to look out for as we enter this kind of uncertain summer uh, of, of probably some litigation around this Supreme Court decision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing besides this the Supreme Court decision um, coming up in October to have on people's radar is that in September, President Trump will set the annual admission ceiling for fiscal year 2018. So that will be a really important thing to look out for. This year, he lowered it from 110,000 to 50,000. And it's possible that he's going to set it for FY18 at 50,000 or even below. And also, um, you know, he may really try to drastically alter the the non-discriminatory characteristics of this program. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely, definitely keep an eye on the setting of that admission ceiling as and, well. And that's something that is like inarguably in the power of the office of the president to do? Yes. So he does have, President Trump does have the authority to set the admission ceiling um, but it is in consultation with Congress. So he is required to, to submit a report to Congress and, and Congress will be consulted. Um, traditionally, this has really been something that has been just sort of a customary handshake to get, to get congressional approval. Um, but it's definitely worth, worth thinking about making some noise this year. Um, to get Congress to ask the right questions and to push the Trump administration um, not to lower the ceiling. Uh, Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful, very timely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mark. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rachel. That was helpful and timely for sure. And uh, I imagine we'd have an update in October when the Supreme Court issues its final decision. In the meantime, as the State Department, Justice Department issues its guidance on what counts as a bona fide entity, uh, follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, and I'll, I'll be on top of this story for sure. And I'll give updates uh, on the podcast and like an intro as well to keep you guys informed, which is what I, I try to do every week, twice a week, every week. So become a premium member. Please support the podcast. Okay, bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.